everyone. Again, uh, if you came in a little bit late there, uh, thanks for joining us and thanks for worshiping the Lord Jesus with us. I'll tell you, every time we do one of these Zoom meetings, I long for the day when uh, I'll go look around and see you all in the flesh. And uh, that day is coming. It will eventually happen. Uh, but we, we still have some things to figure out. So I would uh, greatly appreciate if you guys would be praying for the elders. We are meeting this coming Monday to talk about uh, what reopening will look like uh, once again. And so uh, I, I just pray for a lot of wisdom. Uh, it's, it's a tricky thing. Uh, even as I, I was looking yesterday at a bunch of the different uh, churches in State College to see uh, what are they doing? And it's so varied. Uh, it just takes a lot of wisdom. There's not a lot of precedent for this. So thank you for those prayers. Um, I'll ask that we pray for that at the end of our time together too. But um, if you would uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 16, that's where we're going to be today. And if, uh, for those of you who, uh, I, when, I, when I can't see you all in the shot and you have a local device, I'll, I'll paste the Oh, look at that. Uh, Jeff already pasted the outline in there. I didn't even see it. So uh, now it's pasted twice. That's how much we want you to use an outline. And uh, let's take a look at Luke 16. So um, everything we have has a purpose. We have cars because it gets us from point A to point B. We have coffee makers because coffee helps me at least wake up in the morning. Uh, we have couches so that we can sit comfortably uh, with others for long periods of time, uh, like during a church service these days, uh, and so on and so forth. Everything we have has a purpose. However, what we easily forget is that everything we have has a purpose greater than their immediate function. And that is because everything we have ultimately belongs to God. And in today's text, we'll see that God also has a purpose for everything we have. And that purpose is to win the lost. For the last several chapters, Jesus has been answering the question, will those who will be saved be few? And the answer that he's given us is yes, surprisingly few, and not the ones we might expect, like the, the really righteous, holy-looking ones, the rule-keeping ones, but, but rather the outcasts and the lowly and the humble. And last Sunday in Luke 15, Jesus explained through parables that God's heart, his, his passion, his drive, is to save those few lost souls, whether that's the one sheep in a hundred, or the one coin in ten, or the one son in two. And today, Jesus will continue along that theme by describing the means by which the lost will be won. And this is where you and I come in, because God's means for winning the lost is our wealth, our money, our stuff, everything we have. Everything we have has a purpose, and it's to win the lost. So let's pray, and then we'll open up Luke 16 together. God, we, we thank you for uh, our church gathering together this Sunday morning uh, on Father's Day. We thank you that you are our Father and our example and our model and our Savior. God, there is no father greater than you, and you have demonstrated this by winning the lost, winning all those here who call upon your name. And God, we, we, we see in today's text that you have a purpose for us and for all that you've given us. Open our eyes to see it, God. We want to know you more and to see this carried out. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right. Let me read, starting in verse 1, Luke chapter 16, through verse 9. He, that is Jesus, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to, the, to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. All right, I confess that uh, at first, this seems to be quite a strange story. If you're like me, when you read the master commended the dishonest manager, you feel like you must have missed something. You ever be reading along, you ever reading along your Bible reading plan or something and you, and you miss a word and all of a sudden you're like, wait, that's not right. And you go back and you reread it and you're like, oh, that makes more sense. Well, you can go back and read this one multiple times. And sure enough, the text says exactly what it says. And it's a little bit confusing at first. And I believe that Jesus wants us to have exactly that reaction because it sparks our curiosity. It, it startles us awake. It provides a mystery to be solved. How is it that a dishonest manager who wasted the master's possessions can also be commended by that same master. Thankfully, verse 8 tells us how. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. So the master was not commending the dishonest manager for his dishonesty or for his mismanagement, but rather for his shrewdness. Now, shrewd is not a word that, that we tend to use often, so let's define the term here. To be shrewd is to be wise, particularly in regard to taking advantage of an opportunity. A, a synonym might be cunning. So it's a word that could be either positive or negative, uh, depending on, on what opportunity that person is taking advantage of, right? So the godly woman in Proverbs 31 could rightly be called shrewd, but the serpent in Genesis 3 could also rightly be called shrewd. Now, we can know in this instance that the master was referring to the manager in the good way because we're told that he commends him for his shrewdness. In other words, the master was not happy that the manager had mismanaged his possessions, and he probably wasn't happy with how the manager cut the bills of his debtors, though there's debate on that point because, uh, just as an aside, some interpreters think that those cuts uh, that, that he offered to the, the debtors represent the markup that the manager had placed himself. And so 
reducing their bills wouldn't actually have affected the master's bottom line. But the fact is that the text just isn't clear on that point. And I believe that that lack of clarity is on purpose because Jesus doesn't want us to miss his main point. Because what is very clear in the text is that the master is impressed with the manager's shrewdness. The master recognized that the manager rightly discerned his situation, that he creatively considered his opportunities, and then he wisely took advantage of the one thing he had available, which was to please the master's debtors. In fact, we see the manager's own thought process back in verse 4. He says, I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And that, friends, is the point. That's the connection Jesus makes in verse 8. Listen, Jesus says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Why? Here's why. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. In other words, Jesus is saying that the reason the master is commending the dishonest manager and the whole reason he was even telling this parable to begin with is because Jesus's disciples must learn something from that dishonest manager. You and I, you and I, Grace Fellowship Church, must learn something from that dishonest manager. And here is what we must learn. The sons of this world, those still living in sin and darkness, are more shrewd in dealing with other people than are the sons of light. That's us. They're more shrewd than us. So Jesus is saying that non-Christians are wiser at taking advantage of opportunities with other people than we are. (laughs) What a setup, right? Like, whenever I read this parable, I find myself expecting that dishonest manager to get slammed by Jesus because he's the bad guy, right? He's dishonest. He gets he gets fired. Bad dishonest manager. Bad. But suddenly in verse 8, everything gets turned on its head. The bad guy is commended. And when we furrow our brows in confusion, Jesus provokes us by saying, I know, right? He is the bad guy. And yet he is wiser than you. Isn't that humbling? Friends, you and I are supposed to feel humbled by this parable. And and that should put us in a place to listen. So let us listen to Christ's command to his humbled, unwise disciples. Verse 9, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves. How, Lord? By means of unrighteous wealth. Why, Lord? So that when that unrighteous wealth fails, those friends you have made will receive you into eternal dwellings. Okay, let's break that down. The command itself is simple. Make friends for yourselves. Now, some of us are admittedly perhaps better at making friends than others, but we all know what it means to make friends. So that's clear enough. Now, The way we should make friends, Jesus says, is by means of unrighteous wealth. And perhaps that makes us squirm a little bit because we might first envision, um, you know, a stereotypical sleazy politician who is buying friends, right? And we naturally, naturally and, and rightly will recoil at that. 
And the reason we recoil at that is because we assume that, that our imagined politician doesn't really care about those people, but is only out for more money and more power and so on. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Rather, Jesus is saying that just as the dishonest manager rightly understood the situation and thus handled his finances in accordance with that understanding, so we are to do the same. So what is our situation that we are to wisely discern? Jesus says that it is this. The wealth we have is not eternal. It is temporary. It is limited. It will run out. But there are, all, there are people all around us who do not yet know the Lord Jesus. And so they are still living in sin, both the sin that they are actively committing and the sin that is being committed against them, all of which they are powerless to resist. And so we must recognize that the wealth God has given us has a purpose, and it is to win those lost souls for him, to rescue those lost souls for Jesus, to find and free those lost souls in Jesus. And we are to do that so that one day, when our wealth has failed us and our health has failed us and we breathe our last, those friends we've made, those lost souls we've won, will themselves welcome us into eternal dwellings. That, my friends, is the purpose of our wealth. It's to win souls for Jesus. Now, let's be clear on this. Wealth, or what is translated here as unrighteous wealth, or in some translations, mammon, refers to all you have. It's your net worth. It refers to the cash in your wallet and the money in your checking account and every dime and nickel and penny you might have in savings. It further refers to the house or the apartment that you are living in and to your yard and to the plants in your yard yard, and to the tools and the toys in your yard. It refers to your car and your bike and your bike pump and the extra bike parts that you have sitting in your garage that belong to a bike you sold like 10 years ago. It refers to your laptop or your computer, whatever you're watching this on right now. It refers to your cell phone and your data plan and your Wi-Fi network and every app and song and video that was downloaded over those networks. It refers to the food in your kitchen and the pets on your property and the lights in your light fixtures. It refers to everything you have. Just look around you right now. Go ahead, look around. Look around you right now. I'll wait. By the miracle of Zoom, most of you are listening to this whole thing while sitting in a room that Jesus would classify as unrighteous wealth. You are currently sitting in a couch or a chair or, or on a bed that's, that's part of that wealth, and you're listening to this message on one or more devices that is part of this wealth. All of it, Jesus says, should be used to make friends, to win souls. And that, my friends, gives incredible meaning and purpose to everything you have. Just ponder that for a moment. The sofa you're sitting on right now has a purpose. It's to win souls for Jesus. Your internet service has a purpose. Your cable service and your electricity service have a purpose to win souls for Jesus. Those things in your basement that you never use or think about have a purpose. Say it with me now. 
to win souls for Jesus. Kids, did you know that your toys, every one of your toys has a purpose? Say it with me. To win souls for Jesus. Seniors, and I don't, I don't mean like graduates, I mean like seniors, did you know that your retirement fund has a purpose? Say it with me. To win souls for Jesus. And, and that big old demographic, demographic uh, in our church of so-called young families here at Grace Fellowship, did you know that those extra spaces, those few extra spaces around your dining room table have a purpose, as does the empty seat in your minivan, even that little squished middle seat in the back, or the sports equipment in your yard, or that pack and play in the basement, or that, that bouncy thing that you keep in the attic. All of those things are there, friends. Say it with me. To win souls for Jesus. And just in case you, you didn't fall into any of those categories, then you likely have what none of the rest of us have, which is disposable income. And, and you know what that's for? Say it with me. To win souls for Jesus. Okay, let's talk about a practical application of this. Ready? Make a list of everything you have. I mean it. Go room to room and write down everything you see. Bring the whole family with you or, or at least a socially distanced friend, okay? Then with them, write down everything. Use paper, use a note-taking app, whatever. It doesn't matter. Just write it down, okay? And, and I know that for some of you, you're already going, oh my goodness, I, could, I couldn't do that at just my desk. <laughs> and that, that's okay. Just start with the big stuff like cars and guest rooms and fireplaces and retirement funds. Then after that, you can move to things like lamps and books and, and T-shirts and board games and sports equipment and Tupperware, okay? Now, don't, as you're doing this, don't forget to print out a copy of your bank statement and credit card statement, too, because there are, there are other things that you could gather from them, things like car repairs and internet bills and haircuts and stimulus checks, okay? Then once you have that list, for each item on that list, write down at least one idea per item for how you could use that thing to love other people, and especially those who don't know Jesus. Now, I, I understand that that kind of process, that this application for us, church, can take a while, but it can also be so very encouraging. Where formerly a room in your home or a seat in your car or just some spot on your lawn was, was simply there, by performing this inventory, you, you will, th these places, that the spot in your car, that spot in your lawn will start to glow. You will see them differently. Where, where there are surely things in your life that you don't even know you have. And you're about to find incredible potential and glorious purpose in each of them. And that experience can make even the joy of Christmas morning seem dull and dreary in comparison. And if you can't think of any way to use a given thing to build relationships and win souls for Jesus, just ask yourself, why do I have this? Perhaps the Lord would have you sell it so that you can give the proceeds towards someone in need. Or perhaps Jesus intends that you simply give it to someone else who could have a purpose for it. My friends, in the previous chapter of Luke, we saw that a shepherd 
would leave the 99 to find the one lost sheep, and that a woman would exhaust herself to find one lost coin, and that a father would give everything he has to have his one lost son. What will you use your wealth for? And so, friends, we've seen that God's purpose for wealth is to win souls for Jesus. But perhaps we may think that we really don't have all that much to use for that purpose. Perhaps we're barely making ends meet right now, especially during this season of pandemic. We might wonder, why doesn't Jesus ask the so-called 1% to do their share? They, they could do so much more to win the, the loss than most of us here at Grace Fellowship could, right? Jesus shares his perspective on that in our second and final section, verses 10 through 13. Would you please read this with me? One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. To boil this down, friends, God's assignment of wealth might not be evenly distributed, but each one of us is called to faithfully use what he has given us. See, all Christians would say that we want to have eternal dwellings and endless riches and glory, just as the scriptures promise, right? But Jesus here asks us, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth that you have right now, whether it is much or little, who will entrust to you the true riches? The implicit answer here, friends, is no one. And all Christians should long for the day when we might forever reign with Christ. That is a glorious promise, my friends. But here, Jesus asks us, if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, that is God's distribution of wealth to you right now, who will give you that which is your own? Who is going to let you reign? The implicit answer is no one. And if that thought makes your insides tighten up a little, just wait, because here's the real punch in the gut. Jesus says that how we use God's wealth shows us whether we even love God or if we instead love our stuff. He says you can't serve both. You can't love both. you got to pick one. In fact, you already have picked one. So. Brother, sister, who or what are you serving? Who or what do you love? Please, in the name of the Lord Jesus, let me implore you and admonish you, don't waste your life on stuff that will soon be used up and lost forever. Don't limit your life to this stuff around you right now. Pray that God would reveal your heart and pray that if there's anything 
anywhere that is in any way causing you to love your money or your possessions more than him, that he would take it away, burn it, blow it up, destroy it in whatever way possible. Get it out of your life. Learn to love God. It's simply not worth it to do otherwise than that, friends. Listen, I want eternal dwellings. Do you want eternal dwellings? I do. And, and don't get me wrong, I, I love my house. And now I'm not very handy. I'm not particularly good at building stuff or fixing stuff, but I love my house. I love to daydream about it. I love to invest in it and to make improvements to it. Right now, my, my current daydream is that I want a big bay window in our living room. Oh man, it'd be so nice. More, more natural light coming in, a clear view or a front yard and, and, and up and down the street. And do, do, I don't know, I just feel like it would do so much to make our living room even better. But do you know why I daydream about bay windows and other home improvements? Is it because I'm good at house stuff? No. Is it to increase the market value of our house? No. The reason I daydream about such things, my friends, is you. I love my house because I love you. It's because when Allie and I bought this house and finished the guest room and built the addition and added a fireplace and everything else, it's because we love you. We, we want to be able to host growth groups in our home, including the dozens of kids that come with you so that each of you can experience the joys of knowing Christ more through studying his word and engaging in life-giving fellowship. We want to welcome friends like Tim into our home for months at a time so that we can bless them with all that God has blessed us with while they wait for the ridiculously forward-thinking state college housing market to have a space available. We want to find neighborhood kids assembling Legos in our playroom when we didn't even know they'd come into the house in the first place. And we want all of these people and so many more to know that this is not our house. This is Christ's house. And that's not our minivan in the garage. It's Christ's minivan and Christ's garage. And, and those right there are not my shoes. And, and these are not my lamps. They're all Christ's. And it's all borrowed. Listen, my house, which I love so much, will one day rot and collapse. Or maybe it'll get torn down. Or maybe it will burn. And even my beautiful bay window that I don't even have right now will be shattered. And I may not live to even see that day. But when it all fails, when even my own life fails, I want to have my master say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in little. I will now set you over much. And when I look up in that moment with tears in my eyes, I, I long to see not merely a beautiful, eternal dwelling, complete with bay window, but I long even more to see all of you there by God's grace, many more yet to come, including some who do not yet even know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And if that's you, whether you're here visiting with us on Zoom today or listening to this message at some future date, 
hope you know how incredibly valuable you are. You're incredibly valuable to me and to my family. You are incredibly valuable to this church. And most of all, you're incredibly valuable to Jesus Christ. And I recognize that perhaps the people in your life so far may not have shown that to you. Maybe you learned early on that they loved wealth. They loved their stuff more than they loved you. My friend, God doesn't love his stuff more than you. No, he would give everything he has for you. In fact, he already has. He's already given the most precious thing he had. He gave his own son, Jesus, for you. He did this because your sin has separated you from him for your entire life, just as my sin had separated me from him as well. But like me and like all those who, who are here in this Zoom call, who have chosen Christ and who have been chosen by Christ, you too can be welcomed into God's family. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how much stuff you have. It doesn't matter what color your skin is or what language you speak or what you've done, good or bad. All that matters is that Jesus paid the price for our sin. He took the full punishment that we deserved. So now nothing stands between you and God except your decision to come to him. And so, my friend, would you come? He's waiting for you. And so are we. Now, to those of you who have already come and who called Jesus Christ your Savior and your Lord, please don't allow your wealth to snuff out your love for God. Everything you have has a purpose. So faithfully use your wealth, your money, your possessions, everything toward that purpose. Use your wealth to reach the lost for Jesus. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean sell everything, but it does mean use everything to reach the lost. Use everything to reach the lost. Use everything to reach the lost. Make that inventory we talked about earlier. Then go down that list to check your heart. If you can't or won't use something to reach the lost, my friend, something's broken. And you're in very great danger. Because when Jesus first spoke all these words that we read today, though everyone in his audience heard, not everyone in his audience would listen. In fact, next week, our text starts with these words. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees make their choice. And Jesus is giving you the same one. Whom will you serve? Let's pray.
Lord God, you have given us so much. We have so much stuff. We have so much money. We have so many things. We have we have bank accounts that we can't even see. There are bits and bytes moving on servers out on the internet that, that shuffle our money around and, they, they, and we make transactions and buy stuff and get more stuff. And God, it's so easy to lose the purpose. God, would you open our eyes to see your purpose in everything we have is to win the lost for Jesus. God, if there is anyone listening to this right now who does not know Jesus and his worth and his glory and his divinity and his purposes for them, would you rescue them right now? Would you use these words of Jesus spoken 2,000 years ago to penetrate their heart and win them to you? God, you have given everything for them because of their worth. Would we not snuff that out for the sake of this stuff all around us, which is temporary and limited? Let us learn the lesson from the dishonest manager. Let us be faithful in all you've given us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.